Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Steve Ray and his talk, Moses and the Exodus, the Sacraments in Technicolor, recorded at the Gift of Faith Conference in June 2008. And now, Steve Ray. Electronics he put together out of clay. Anyway, he starts a new creation out of water and spirit. Nicodemus should have known this. But then what happens in Noah's time? God's going to wipe out the earth because of sin. And I'm not making this up either. This is also a picture of baptism. Even Peter, in his first papal encyclical, I love calling it that, in the book of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21, Peter says, and referring to Noah, he said, and this corresponds to Noah and the whole flood corresponds to your baptism. And then he says, baptism now saves you, like Noah was saved through the water. And after the flood, what was hovering over the ark? A white dove. And what does the white dove represent? Especially when he has an olive branch in his beak, it represents the Holy Spirit. So again, you have water and spirit. And what is God doing? Starting a new humanity. After he wipes out sin, he's starting something new, a new humanity. And even the Jewish rabbis refer to Noah as the second Adam. Because God is starting over again with a new man. And then we have another beginning, the one we're at, with Moses. They're stuck in the land of Egypt. God wants to form a nation. He wants to start something new. The nation and people of Israel as a nation with a covenant with him. How does he do it? Through water and spirit. He leads them through the Red Sea. And the Holy Spirit is on top above. And they walk water and spirit. Nicodemus should have known this. He was a rabbi, a professor, a doctor of theology. He should have known this. It's full in the Old Testament. And it goes on and on. And then Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 25, tells us what the new covenant is going to look like. He said, you will be sprinkled clean with water. And the Spirit will come to indwell you. And then you will obey the commands of God. You failed to do it all along, Jews. All the people of Israel, you failed to live up to the law. But there's going to come a time where I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water. And I'm going to put my Spirit right within you. And then you will obey my law. Then Jesus comes along, and what does he do? He goes down to the Jordan River, and he goes into the water. And what comes down? The Spirit, water and Spirit. This happened before Nicodemus came with his question, by the way. This happened in John chapter 1. Nicodemus comes in John chapter 3. It was in the Jerusalem Times headlines. Jesus in the Jordan, dove comes down. (laughs) Headline of the Jerusalem Post, everybody knew it. It said that all of Jerusalem went down to hear John. This was not an isolated incident of this crazy guy with camel hair and eating grasshoppers. You know, by the way, all of the Old Testament, there's all these foods you can't eat. Like, they couldn't eat lobster and... See, I don't know if I'm Jewish after all, because I love lobster and clams and all shrimp and all these things. But you know that it specifically says that one of the clean foods is any insect that hops, and it lists locusts, grasshoppers, and crickets. So John the Baptist was eating mosaically clean foods when he was eating these hoppy creatures. So John is down there. It says, all of Jerusalem came down to see John. Jesus goes into the water, comes back up. The Spirit comes down. Water and Spirit, it's as clear as can be, in the headlines of the newspaper. Why doesn't Nicodemus know this? Well, the same reason that I didn't know it as a Baptist, because I had the wrong glasses on. I was wearing Baptist glasses. Of course I couldn't see it. If you have red-colored glasses, what does the world look like? It looks red. And if you have blue-colored glasses, what does the world look like? It looks blue. And if you wear Baptist glasses, what does the world look like? What does the Bible look like? Baptist. 
It's a lens with which you see the world. And Nicodemus was not having the lens that he could see who Christ was. He wasn't having the lens of faith and really following the teachings of the prophets and the patriarchs. It became very legalistic. So that's how a Catholic understands being born again, going through the Red Sea. Now, we're born again, we're brought out, we're delivered now through baptism and the Spirit, and now we're in the wilderness. Right, what's the wilderness? It's the world that we live in every day. They get hungry. I've been through the Sinai Desert many times, and they grumbled and complained against Moses. And I'm telling you that I would have been right in the front of the line. I don't criticize these people too much because when I was there, like I think I said last night, sand was blowing across the road, three-foot drifts like snow does in Michigan. And the bus stalled because there was so much sand it clogged up the engine and stalled. I understand they're complaining and they're grumbling, but still they did. And then what did God do? He brought them food. I want to move right to the Eucharist. Once they got out into the wilderness, they got hungry. You can imagine if the Hebrew scriptures are correct, there's two million people walking through this desert. How, how long is the water going to last in your skin bags that you have the water in? There's no hotels and drinking fountains. There's no toothbrushes and doctors. There's no McDonald's. There's nothing along the way. No washing machines, no showers, none of this. They're walking through this desert, and they get hungry, and God gives them water. He strikes the rock, and water comes out. You know what the rock is, by the way, right? That's Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3 says that rock was Christ. And when Moses struck the rock, it was a picture of the crucifixion. Christ was struck, and the water came out. What, was happen- what happened to Jesus when he was struck on the cross? Water came out of his side, didn't it? Jesus is struck. And Paul goes so far as to tell us a tradition that was there, that this rock followed them through the wilderness. You see, every time at night, if you stayed up and watched, that rock would, and there it was. You just follow them all the time, this big rock full of water. Now, at the end of the time when they're traveling with a whole new generation, they go to that rock to get water again, and God told Moses to speak to the rock, and Moses was angry at those people because they're always grumbling, and he's angry at them, so he walks up, and instead of speaking to the rock, he whacks it twice, bam, bam. And immediately he's forbidden to go into the promised land. I always thought God was rather strict. What? Forty years he's been leading these people through the wilderness, and because he strikes the rock, I mean, he hit it once before and water came out, so he hits it twice. What's the big deal, God? Let the poor man into the Holy Land. By the way, he did get there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He ended up finally getting there. But he strikes the rock twice. Why was God so angry? Because Christ is only crucified once. He's only struck once And the water comes out. You don't crucify Christ again. And as a Protestant, I used to accuse Catholics of sacrificing him, crucifying him over and over and over again on the altar. And this right there alone says no, because Moses was severely punished for striking the rock again to get the water to come out. When the priest is at the altar, he doesn't have to strike Christ. He doesn't have to crucify Christ. He only speaks the word and the blessing comes out. God was angry at Moses because he understood typology and that the rock represented him and Moses misrepresented what the Eucharist was going to be someday in the work of Christ. You don't hit and strike Christ again two times. You speak to the rock and the rock will give you what you need after it's been struck once. When the priest offers sacrifice of the mass, he only speaks to the rock and the life comes out. So God gives them a special food and it's called manna. He feeds them. And they came out of their tent one morning after grumbling and complaining. They come out of their tent and there's all these flakes in the ground. And they have no idea what it is. 
And they all start saying, what is it? What is it? Do you know what the word manna means? Roz does. Manna means what is it in Hebrew. <laughs> so they walked out and they said, manna, what is it? And that's how it got its name. I'm not kidding you. But what is the manna a picture of? What is it a type of? It is the food for the journey. It is a miraculous bread that comes down from heaven every day except Saturday. Because they can't work on Saturday to collect it. So twice as much comes down on Friday so that they can collect enough for tomorrow. And any other day, if you tried to hoard it for a day, it would rot. But on Friday, if you hoarded it till Saturday, it didn't rot because this was a miraculous food that God gave. And it's a picture of the Eucharist. Even Jesus, didn't he say in John chapter 6 when he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and I love to do this talk in a nutshell form, standing in that synagogue in Capernaum. And what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. What's he referring to? He's referring to the manna. And if you don't think the Old Testament means something, when we even pray the Our Father, we said, give us this day our daily bread. Where do you think that came from? Jesus didn't just make up a phrase to pray for daily bread. He's thinking of the Eucharist. Give us this day our daily bread. Let it come down every day for us. It's referring to the altar, to the Eucharist. It refers also to the food that we eat and God sustaining us in life. But primarily this is referring, this is our daily bread is referring to manna. But there's really quickly, I'm going to just go through a couple of other types related to the Eucharist. First of all, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God have to do? They thought they could cover their own sins, right? And they went and got, they got fig leaves to cover themselves with fig leaves. They were naked and they realized it. Oh, by the way, it was John the 23rd, I found out, I told her. that John the 23rd was at an event in this, and I think it was a wedding or a, a papal dinner, and this woman came very scantily clad, kind of hanging out of her dress, and, you know, very, and he came up to the Pope and greeted the Pope, and he handed her an apple. And she said, why did you give me this apple? He said, because it wasn't until Eve ate the apple that she realized she was naked. <laughs> But what did, Adam and Eve, what did Adam and Eve do? They realized they were naked and they didn't have clothes. They couldn't go to the store. So they went and got these big fig leaves and covered themselves with fig leaves. But I did a little research and the fig tree has a chemical in it which causes dermatitis. It causes the skin to rash and itch. And which just is a picture that you can't cover your own sins. You only make things worse. When you go to try and cover your own sins and deal with it on your own, you cover yourselves, you start itching and scratching, and it has to be God that gives you a covering, and he has to kill an innocent animal, and some animal has to die because of Adam and Eve's sin, and he comes and covers them. And this is already a picture of the sacrifice, the Passover. But then Melchizedek comes, and he's right outside of where Jerusalem is, right where the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom meet. It's called the, the plain of the king's plain. And this is where Abraham met with Melchizedek when he was coming back from battle. And Abraham gives him a tenth of his spoils, and Melchizedek, it says he is, the, he is the king of Salem. Where do you think that is? Jeru, Salem. There he is. And he comes out to Abraham with bread and wine. Again, a picture, type, and the Catholic Church says that's always been viewed and read it to the fathers over and over again. This is the priest coming out from Jerusalem. Jesus, the king of peace, bringing bread and wine, which is a picture of the Eucharist. And then the Passover lamb we already t talked about in manna. And then Bethlehem is another fun one too because what does Bethlehem mean? I have a picture of, yep, house of bread. I have a picture of me hitchhiking to Bethlehem, my wife took, and it's under a sign that says Bethlehem, two words, house of bread. What is in Mary's womb? The bread of life come down from heaven. 
Where is she going to deliver the bread? Mary is going to deliver the bread at the house of bread. And where does she place Jesus in the manger when we go to Israel? There's two places in the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, two different little um, altars. One is where Jesus was born, and you reach through the 14-point star, and you touch the place where Jesus was born, you take a few steps down, and you touch the place where Jesus was laid in the manger. Why a manger? Why put your baby in a manger? Because it's a food dish for sheep. Where did they put Jesus from the very moment you're being told he's going to be your food because you are the lambs of God, the sheep of God, he's the shepherd. And where does he come immediately? He's put into a food dish and he's a picture that someday we're going to eat him. He's in a dish. The bread of life come down to the city of bread, the house of bread, and being put in a dish for you right from the beginning. This is all the Eucharist in the Old Testament. We could go on and on. I'm only going to say one more, and that's Malachi 1.11. Because here, Malachi says that there will come a time when the nations will offer a pure offering on the table of the Lord, and it will be accepted by God. How can that happen? It was a problem. It had to be a problem for the Jewish people because they were the Gentile goyim dogs. How could they possibly offer an offering that is pure, first of all, and that God is going to accept? They're dogs. They're Gentiles, uncircumcised. We can't even touch them. I told you last night about the Jewish man who wouldn't get away from my camera, and I finally told him I was going to touch him if he didn't get away. And, they, and here, you're, you're reading, a, a Jewish prophet is saying that from east to west, and remember in the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer from east to west, that comes exactly out of Malachi 1.11, that from east to west there will be a pure offering made among the nations with the Gentile going dogs. That's in parentheses. It doesn't say that. It's just assumed. And God will accept that sacrifice as holy. This is the Eucharist. The fathers of the church uniformly wanted to tell you about the Eucharist. They go right back to Malachi 1.11, the altar of the Lord, the table. It's the Eucharist. And we could go on and on. But we have another sacrament to touch on because Moses comes out of the wilderness, and he is a very special man. He comes down from the mountain, and he has three things, the written word of God, the oral tradition, and he has the chair of Moses. Not a literal chair yet, but it says Moses took his seat and taught the people. Cathedra. He took his seat, and he judged the people day and night. The chair of Moses, by the way, has been changed now to the chair of Peter, and that's what I'm going to talk about this afternoon, the whole history of how Moses... The chair there in the authority becomes Peter's in the new Israel. So you now have Moses who has this power from God to teach, to judge, to speak God's word. But he knows he's going to die eventually. At 120 years old, and his eye was not dim nor his strength abated. At 120 years old, he was as strong as a young man. And he, it says that he went to God and he says, God, I have all of these people. Who is going to lead them when I die? They need a shepherd. What should I do? And he says, go to Joshua. He's the first guy that never had any parents because he's called Joshua, the son of Nun. And he went to, <laughs> he went to Joshua. And, he said, and God said, go to Joshua. He was one of the few. Only there were four of the originals left at this point because 40 years in the wilderness, only four were left, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, which means old dog. That's what the name means. Only those four. And of those four, only two made it into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, the old dog. Aaron died and was buried on Mount Hur in Jordan. And Moses died and was buried at Mount Nebo in Jordan. And only those two went across. And God said to, Abraham, uh, to Moses, to prepare the people to go into the land, I want you to go and lay your hands on Joshua. 
And part of the authority and the dignity that is in you will go into him. What if Moses would have said, no, I just want to say it. I'm not going to touch his head. He's got dandruff. I'm not going to touch him. But would he have still been invested with the authority of Moses? God said, go and lay your hands on Joshua, and the authority which is in you will go into him, and he will lead the people. And Joshua was then invested with the authority of Moses by the laying on of hands. And from that point on, you thought the Catholic Church invented this laying on of hands, right? In the Middle Ages sometime. The Catholic Church didn't invent any of this. The Catholic Church is just growing up from the root in the trunk. Laying on of hands was all the way back at Mount Sinai and in the wilderness. And then there were 70. There were 70 elders. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that we see in this, that I just really quickly it says that he gathered the 70 elders around him, Moses did, and he placed them around about the tent. Then the Lord came down out of the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it into the 70 elders. And then they prophesied in the name of the Lord. And the Catholic Catechism said that season the, the priesthood of Aaron and the services of the Levite, that this was the handing on of the ordination of Aaron and of Moses and their power, both being Levites, to go into the people there. So this was all done by the laying on of hands. In the Jewish Mishnah, in a, the, a book, it's, it's the compilation of the tradition of the rabbis through this time that was never written down. After the time of Christ, maybe the third century, I think it was, they compiled these traditions in what's called the Mishnah. And one of the books is called the Vote, the Fathers. And it starts out by saying that God gave Moses the Torah on Sinai. And Moses handed it on to Joshua, who handed it on to the judges, who handed it on to the prophets, who handed it on to the general assembly, to the great assembly. In other words, there was this, this ordination, in a sense, this passing it on and passing it on. And at the time of Jesus, they were the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 were gone. But there was the chair of Moses, and it was in the synagogues. There's one in, still in the, Jerusalem, in the Israel Museum. It was found in Chorazim in Galilee. It was a stone chair, and it was the kind of chair that was in all the synagogues. And the, and the rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees would sit in that chair, and Jesus said, when they sit in the chair of Moses, Matthew 23, verse 2, when they sit in the chair of Moses, you do what they tell you to do. Don't do what they do because they're hypocrites, but do what they tell you because when they teach from the chair of Moses, they have my authority to teach. And then Jesus starts the new Israel. Do you ever wonder why there were 12 tribes and now there's 12 apostles and there was the chair of Moses and now there's the chair of Peter? This is all preparing for the church. So this is the priesthood. I could go on and on on that, but I just want to touch on confession and then we'll be almost done. I'm not going to say much about this, but in the Old Testament, confession was seen in the, the rites of purification. Even today, if you go down to the Pool of Siloam on Friday night, you'll find Jewish people washing in the Pool of Siloam just down the hill from where the temple used to be. They are preparing for Shabbat. They're going to confession, in a sense. They're cl- getting cleansed and ready. We have confession on Saturday so that we are prepared to come to the house of the Lord on Sunday. David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband. And so then what happens? The prophet comes. The man of God comes. And David doesn't want to admit it. And Nathan said, tells him a story about a rich man who stole the one little lamb from a poor man. And David said, he will die for stealing that lamb. And Nathan said one of the most powerful words, you are the man. Right to the king's face. You are the man who stole the lamb. You stole Bathsheba. And David then confessed his sin. 
And what did, the pre- what did Nathan say? Your sins are forgiven. You will not die. You are absolved. But you have to do penance. And the penance for David was he lost his firstborn son with Bathsheba. But there we see confession. In the Old Testament, when you brought the lamb or the turtle dove to the priest for the sins, you had to confess your sins. Otherwise, what would the priest know he was sacrificing the lamb for? Or the turtle dove. You'd confess your sins and then he'd slay the lamb. Sins were also put on the scapegoat. Confess the sins on the scapegoat and sent him out and then the other scapegoat was killed for the sins. But there was, an, there was a preparation for our sacrament of confession already there in the Old Testament. Remember in John chapter 5 where the man was, was uh, crippled and I think it was him in John chapter 5 he was crippled at the pools of Bethesda and Jesus healed him and what did he do? He went up to tell the priests and they, they said that he was clean. The priests were the ones that declared you to be clean. A picture of the coming sacrament of confession where we go on Saturdays to get clean so we can celebrate in the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord on Sunday. So now I just want to close with the comparisons. Whenever I said earlier, whenever you hear about mountains, you have to think about why because mountains, nothing is mentioned haphazardly in the Bible. And I want to just compare because this all happened, what we talked about at Mount Sinai with Moses. At Mount Tabor, in the center of Jerusalem, uh, in Galilee, Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus went up there with his disciples and was transfigured before them. And you have to say to yourself, why here? What does it all mean? Things happen. Moses and Elijah is there. First of all, it's rather interesting. Jesus is talking to dead guys. And when people say to me, how come you pray to saints? They're dead. I said, well, you need to read your Bible. I mean, come on. Jesus is on Mount Tabor. Talk, we, Elijah went up into heaven, so that's a questionable one. But Moses was dead and buried. Scripture testifies to that. And yet what's Jesus doing? Talking to Moses about things that are going to take place soon in Jerusalem. Okay, so there, I, by the way, Moses did make it into the promised land eventually at the transfiguration. But it's a mountain. I just want to compare these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Tabor. They're both on mountains. At the transfiguration and at God's coming, a cloud came down on both. What does cloud represent? In the Bible, the cloud represents the glory of God. That's why when Jesus ascended into heaven, where did he go? Into a cloud, he went back into the glory of God, into heaven. A cloud represents the glory of God. God coming down to visit his people, his glory comes down to visit them on Mount Sinai, and it came down on Mount Tabor. And Moses had said when he went up to meet God, his face was so shining bright that they couldn't even look on him. They had to put a veil over his face. What happens to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? His face is so bright that you couldn't even look at him. And his clothes were so white they were cleaner than any launderer on earth could make them. And Moses and Elijah were there to hand the baton on to Jesus because he is the new Moses and he is the new Elijah and he's also the new David. And you want to go into that, I can make a whole list for you. Then two more things about Mount Tabor, the Transfiguration. Jesus says from, the Mount, from heaven, what does he say about his son? This is my son. Listen to him. Where do we find listen to him earlier in the Bible? You go to your computer, you type in listen to him, enter. Bing. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. Moses says, from the wilderness in Mount Sinai, there will come a time that I, God will give you the prophet, not a prophet or many prophets, but he will give you the prophet. And it's really fun to read through Jewish commentaries and see how they work with this because they don't want to admit there was just one. But it says there will be the prophet. And when he will be taken from your own people, and when he comes to you, listen to him, it says. In verse 18 and 15, when this prophet comes, listen to him. Jesus is on Mount Tabor, a mountain. 
face is shining, cloud comes down, and the voice from heaven says, this is him, I told you he's coming, listen to him. He is the one. Then, it says in Luke, that's my favorite story of the transfiguration, partly because of this. It says Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his departure soon to take place in Jerusalem. And the word departure in Greek is exodus. Jesus is going to be leading an exodus. And who is he talking to about it? The guy who led the first exodus. And how is Jesus going to lead the exodus? He's going to take us through the Red Sea, water and spirit, and deliver us through water and the spirit. And then he's going to give us miraculous food and bread in the wilderness to eat, which is our wilderness, which is the manna, which is the Eucharist. And he's going to give us the priests who will lead us all the way from Moses. The hands have been being laid on. All Father here thinks he just got ordained by his bishop. You know, but He goes all the way back to Moses. This laying on of hands started 3,500 years ago, roughly. Jesus is starting this new exodus, and in the wilderness they confess their sins, and guess what? On Saturdays or any time we can confess our sins and be prepared for the great sacrifice. Jesus is leading you out of the world when you become a Christian. You're going to wander through the wilderness, and eventually what's he going to do? He's going to take you across the Jordan into the promised land. And you can't see Moses as the complete type of Christ unless you view it along with Joshua. That's why David and Solomon are the full picture of Christ, just like Moses and Joshua is, because what happens then? The word Joshua is Yeshua in Hebrew, and it means Jesus. It's the name Jesus. And what happens then? Jesus brings you through the Jordan River into the Holy Land, into the promised land of heaven. So you are on the Exodus. All of this relates to you. You go back and read the Old Testament. It's not just a good bunch of stories. It's about you. It tells who you are. It tells you your heritage and your history. And it tells you why you're doing what you're doing today and who you are. And it gives you the whole picture and technicolor as you go back and look at it in the Old Testament. Why do I love the Bible and the Jewish people? Because they are the roots of who we are. And it helps us to understand. And I encourage all of you Catholics to learn the Bible because it's your book. It's not their book out there, the people who are trying to get you to leave the Catholic Church. The Bible is your book. It's your family heirloom. It was written by Catholics. It was preserved by Catholics. It was collected and canonized by Catholics. And today it's interpreted properly by Catholics. And when I, as a Protestant, used to quote from the Bible, I was picking fruit from a tree I didn't plant. It's your book. Learn it and love it. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.